Sin, how you view it, how you respond to it, how you deal with it, says an awful lot about who you are and if, in fact, you really are a Christian, as we'll see next on today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Hi there, and welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Pastor Steve Converse takes us back to Romans chapter 7 as we again take a look at the consequences of sin and why it's so important. See, as we'll see in some of the practical application of today's program, if you don't hate your sin and struggle against it, you need to really examine whether or not you are saved. So let's take a look at sin, how to deal with it and how not to deal with it, and why it's so important that we do deal with it properly and have a proper view of it. With more, here's Pastor Steve Converse and this edition of Graceful Truth. In Romans 6, 19, Paul says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, Onto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness, onto holiness. The implication here, once again, is that the Christian could possibly yield to sin and that we shouldn't do that. <clears throat> so if you want to argue that chapter 7 can't refer to a Christian because of the statements in chapter 6, it's really you're misunderstanding the intention of the writings in chapter 6. So I believe he's referring to a Christian here because personally I believe he's referring to himself and I believe that uh, Paul was a Christian. Well, let's look at the Christian view. How do they get to this point? If this person is a Christian, how do we see this? Well, look at verse 22 because what is the description of a Christian? Verse 22 says this, for I delight, whoever's this is, here's what he's doing. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That certainly is something that a non-Christian wouldn't do. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says that the unregenerate person, those who are not in Christ, is not subject to the law of God. Verse 25 says, Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my mind I myself serve the law of God. That sounds like a Christian to me, somebody who's interested in what God's law says so he can follow it. He's pursuing God. He's not running from God. He's not saying, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe God. I don't believe there is a God or his word or anything. No, he's saying, I love it. He wants to serve Christ. He wants to serve the law of God. And the second thing there he mentions in verse 15, he says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing, what? I hate. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about sin. Does an unsaved person long to do what is right, but inexplicably prevented from doing so. I really want to do what's right. I really, but you know, just no, no. An unsaved person has no clue about doing what's right. I mean, they may live a moral life. They may be a good husband or whatever it might be, a good father and worker and all that stuff. That's, that's worldly standards. Jeremiah 7, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So if you're sitting here this morning and saying, well, you know, Do I pursue God? Do I hate sin? You might want to think about where your heart is. Because if you're not in Christ, the Bible says that your 
You're dead in your sins. You're carrying around a weight of sin that Christ has already, that Christ wants to pay for, that Christ wants to take from you. He says, come to me. I'll, I'll make your burden light. And you always hear some people who are not Christians, they'll say, well, I don't feel I'm carrying any burden. What do you mean I'm carrying a burden? I don't feel like I'm carrying around any burden. I remember reading a story of a pastor who was using that example, you know, as a non-Christian, non-Christian, someone who's not in Christ, you're carrying around a tremendous burden of sin. And there was a young man who said, okay, if this burden of sin is so burdensome, how much does it weigh? Does it weigh five pounds, 10 pounds, 100 pounds? Because I'm not a Christian and I'm not feeling your burden of sin that you're telling me I have. And the pastor thought for a moment and he said, let me ask you a question. If I took a 400-pound block of concrete and dropped it on a dead corpse, would it feel it? (laughs) The Bible says that you are dead in your trespasses and sin. In other words, you're carrying around a burden you can't even perceive what it is. But we know the Bible tells us it's there. And Christ came to relieve you of that, to lift that burden. So a Christian is someone who pursues God, someone who hates sin. And that's what Paul is describing here. He's not describing somebody that's doing sin and loves it. No, he says, I'm doing something I hate. As a believer, don't you hate it when you sin? It's a conviction. It's just, man, I blew it again. You know, and it drives you to your knees and it drives you back to the cross and it drives you back to God. I think that's kind of why God allowed this little cycle of sin and forgiveness to continue in the believer's life. Can you imagine what we'd be like if the moment we came to Christ, we were perfect? Can you imagine a church full of a bunch of perfect Christians? I mean, we're perfect positionally, but I don't know about you, but my ego would be, if I could walk, if I could be perfect, I'd be telling people about it. And I'll tell you what, I'd be looking down on all you people who couldn't be perfect like I'm perfect because I don't sin. I'm a Christian. Would you be drawn to that kind of gospel? I don't think so. But when you say, you know what, it's by the grace of God that I stand here before you, that he has forgiven me. And it's only by his grace I can continue each day because every day I need that grace. Every day I'm going to the cross. And I hate it. When I fall short of God's standard. I hate it when I do something in my life that's dishonoring to Christ. See, that's, that's a true believer. And that's what he's saying here in these, in these verses. Something deep inside this person wants to do what is right. Nevertheless, an evil principle keeps that from being accomplished. Romans 3 tells us that the unsaved person has no such desire to do the will of God. Romans 3, verses 11, 12, 18, there it says, There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. There is none that does good. No, not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes, it says. Paul basically says an unbeliever does not pursue God. And he doesn't seek after to understand his holy law. So the conflict that's described here in Romans chapter 7 clearly must be of someone who is truly redeemed, someone who's come to Christ, who's been forgiven. I don't think an unsaved person experiences much of that battle at all. They just continue to live their life. They're sinning. They don't even really know it. (laughs) From God's perspective, people 
are not good by nature, they're evil. And we need to be reminded of that. Well, another question comes up at this point when we talk about this Christian in Romans 7. And it's simply this. Well, what kind of Christian is this guy? I mean, think about it. Who is he talking about here? The Christian of Romans 7, is this some spiritually immature person? I mean, some people believe that this is what you call a a carnal Christian. And they use this text to support their view. In other words, you can come to Christ and you can get saved and then you can live however you want. They say that, well, that's a carnal Christian. One writer says Romans 7 describes the abject misery and failure of a Christian who attempts to please God under the Mosaic system. I don't agree with that. Well, maybe this is describing somebody who's mature spiritually. Um, Remember I mentioned Augustine? Well, later in life, this is what he came to understand. This is also a view held by Luther and Calvin, most of the reformers. Reformers such as John Owen, Charles Hodge, John Murray, more recently, James Boyce, John Piper, others, Carther. See, I really believe that Romans 7, verses 14 to 25 describes probably one of the most mature Christians there ever could be. Why do you say that? Well, I say that because he sees so clearly the inability of his flesh to uphold the divine standard. The more a believer matures, the more spiritual a believer is, the greater his sensitivity is to the shortcomings in his own life. You take an immature Christian, he doesn't really have an honest perception of himself. I mean, he's kind of high on his salvation and, you know, he's talking all this smack and, you know, boy, he's going to change the world and boy, and it's great to have that kind of enthusiasm. But you just kind of smile and go, okay, (laughs) you know, you wait call me tomorrow when you've done something that totally dishonors the Savior that just saved you. Tell me how you feel then. See, it's only the legalist who is under the illusion that he's so spiritual. It's not the mature believer. And I believe Paul here is describing himself in this chapter. And he uses I, 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 my, me, mine over and over and over. It would be hard to understand that he's describing somebody else. Now, some people say that this describes Paul's struggle before he was saved or even when he just got saved or he's still spiritually immature. But I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that discernment at all, that understanding at all. I think it describes him at the very heights of his Christian maturity because he's being open. He's being honest. He understands that he's never going to live up in this life to God's holy standard. Remember, how high is God's standard? Remember what they asked Jesus, well, how do we get into, you know, uh, what do we have to do to get into heaven? How, how good do we have to be? And what did Jesus say? You have to be what? Perfect as my father's in heaven. Well, that kind of closes the book on a lot of people. It's like, you know, head back to the back of the line there, pal. You're up here all thinking you're Mr. Christian and you're perfect. Well, you're not. He finds himself really confronted with the ugliness of sin in his life. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is also written by Paul. Is this Romans place, the only place that Paul describes himself as this Christian in turmoil with the struggle of sin? No, in his other writings he does as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verses 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles, (laughs) bottom of the barrel, end of the line, unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. 
But, don't you just love the buts of Scripture? I do. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul didn't feel fit to be an apostle because he had once persecuted the church. Look over at Ephesians chapter 3. Now remember, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians was written before Ephesians. So look at chapter 3, verse 8. So this is a little later on in Paul's Christian walk. And he says in verse 8, chapter 3, Ephesians, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He seems a little more humble there. Look over at 1 Timothy. Keep turning to your right. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. So he wrote this after he wrote Ephesians. A little later on. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent... But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul is saying, if God can save me, he can save anybody. He experienced God's power, his wisdom, his knowledge. That's what happens when you grow in your relationship with Christ. You take a new believer, man, they're ready to conquer the world. You take a seasoned saint, they're going, okay, let me pray about that first. (laughs) You know, they understand. And now go back to Romans 7 because he clearly uses some terms here in Romans 7 that you can't miss his personal struggle with sin. Verse 15, we talked about this, that he hates committing sin. Verse 19 and 21, it says that he loves righteousness. 22 says that he delights in the law of God from the bottom of his heart, basically. Verse 25 says that he thanks God for deliverance in Christ. I mean, I would say that those are all responses of a mature Christian. That's not some new believer. You may have also realized that in verses 7 to 13 of Romans 7, when he's talking here, he's talking in the past. All the tenses are in the past. Verse 9, I was once... Alive apart from. He, he goes down, down through that whole text and he's talking about something in the past. And then in verse 14, all of a sudden, the tense changes to the present tense. So it tells us that Paul moved out of the past tense before he was redeemed into the present tense. And along with that came a different relationship to sin. Look at verse, verse 11, Romans 7 verse 11. It says, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, past tense, and through it killed me. Sin killed Paul's hope. Sin killed Paul's security. Security in what, you might say? In his self-righteousness. In the law of God. But then all of a sudden in verses 15 to 25, you see Paul alive and he's fighting with sin. So I clearly believe that verses 14 to 25 is Paul's own personal testimony of how to live a a spirit-controlled, 
God-honoring life. He loves God's law, but he finds himself wrapped in this human flesh and unable to fulfill the way his heart wants to go. So it describes the conflict of a mature Christian man, not some little baby Christian that's struggling with sin. And what does that tell us? That tells us that the struggle with sin does not go away, beloved, until we leave this place. We all struggle with sin. And we all deal with the struggle with sin in different ways. I mean, clearly, he's thinking of this victory over sin. And clearly, he wants that victory to be ours. And clearly, he understands that it can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit and Christ. But he wants us to understand very clearly, I think, the Apostle Paul, that this victory will only come through struggle. It's not handed to us on a silver platter. We don't get saved and then go, you know, dancing through the bed of roses, you know, on our way to glory. No. We return to a sinful, dying world filled with sin all around us. We're still trapped in this body. And so how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this struggle against sin? James Boyce points this out and he says, Americans, he calls it the American way. (laughs) Americans deal with it in three ways. First of all, they look for a new formula. The first way we try to avoid this struggle with sin in our Christian lives is by hunting down some new easy formula that will bring us victory. It takes various forms. He says, discovering a Christian book that will tell us exactly what we need to do following a three-step or four-step recipe for growth in the Christian life. Ceasing to do some easy things like going to the movies or something like that. Starting to do more difficult things like attending seminars. Things like... You need to get out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8. Let go and let God. Get self off the throne of your life and put Christ there. Just let Jesus take control. We've all probably heard those things. We've all probably said those things. But the underlying motivation of those attempts is really laziness. Do you understand that when God saved you, he saved you to struggle? If he wouldn't have, you would be out of here the moment you're saved. When you come to Christ, if that wasn't God's plan, the moment you're saved, man, you'd just be transported to glory. Why leave you here? What would be the purpose in that? No, there's, there's a purpose in our struggle with sin. And see, us as Americans think, well, we have to struggle with sin, and, and we just got to find something that we'll just, we can plug in and just take care of that struggle. Or read a little book or a track or something. Something's got to work. And that's why you have Christians all over the globe looking for a little niche, looking for something new. And usually it's the false teachers that prey upon that desire. So they publish certain books and they'll publish stuff out. Oh, you can live this victorious Christian life. You know, if you just follow this formula or pray this prayer every day or do this or do that. And Christians by the hordes follow it. What Paul is saying is that, you know what? We need to understand the Christian life is a hard life by its very nature. It's not easy. Somehow we think that we're not doing it right if it's hard. That if we're not, you know, rolling in the money and have no health problems and all our kids lined up, ducks in a row, everything's good, well, then God's blessing us. No. See, we'll never find that formula because, honestly, it doesn't exist. And so we buy into certain things and then we find ourselves right back in the same sinful behavior we did before thinking, well, maybe that'll work. Man, I went to that seminar. They promised it would work. It didn't work. You know, whatever it might be. 
That struggle is there for a purpose. And it's not to excuse sin. We're not doing that. But at the same time, you have to realize and you have to be realistic about who you are in Christ. Positionally, you're forgiven. You're perfect. You're holy. You're a, you're a child of God. Practically, you know what? You're just a saved sinner that's kicking dust up as you go through this sinful, sinful world. Boyce goes on and he explains the second unbiblical way of dealing with this struggle of sin is people look for not just a new formula, but they look for a new experience. You know, we try to avoid this struggle in the Christian life by hunting down some new spiritual experience. Now, the charismatic movement has a very kind of a corner on all this. So they say you can have a victorious Christian life. Well, if you don't, well, let me, do you speak in tongues? Do you, do you sow seed? Do you do all this stuff? And they use all this games to, to, to whet people's appetite. And somehow they think that if they buy into that, that, boy, their life is just going to be wonderful because the people up here behind the pulpit are saying, look at my life. My life's wonderful. Most of those people, you pull back the curtain and their life is anything but wonderful. They're just playing the charlatan. We have to be careful. They teach that somehow there's a second work of grace. That somehow when you come to Christ, he doesn't give you everything you need. Somehow that if you just beg him a little more, that maybe he'll baptize you in the spirit and you'll have a prayer language. You can talk like angels and you can do all these crazy things. I mean, it's bizarre. But people buy into it and follow it by the millions. Why? Because they're looking for a new experience. Because someone said, if you're a Christian, well, you shouldn't have to struggle with sin. That shouldn't be part of your your Christian life. If I can just get one more emotional experience, if they just play the right song long enough, somehow I'll be elevated to this new level of Christianity where I don't have to deal with sin anymore. It's not going to happen. It's not a realistic expectation. It's not a biblical expectation. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people going home from church, when they say, boy, wasn't that a wonderful, worshipful experience? They mean nothing than maybe they acquired some biblical knowledge and maybe had a little emotional boost here and there. They forget about the struggle with sin. So don't look for a new experience. God has given us everything we need right here in this book to deal with the struggle of sin. He's given us everything we need as believers in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and the church and coming together in fellowship to deal with The struggle with sin. But see, the problem is we don't believe that. So when we get caught up in sin, what do we do? Rather than run to the body of Christ, confess the sin and be transparent, we run and we hide. Thinking somehow, eventually I'll just get over this and then I can re-engage with the body of Christ. That's the exact opposite that the Bible tells you to do. The Bible says, you know what, if you have an issue with somebody, you, you go and you address that. And you get it out in the open. You be transparent. Be humble about it. Don't play games. Don't think somehow that next week you're going to be a little more spiritually clean to walk through the doors. We're all in the same boat. We're a bunch of sinners who've put our faith and trust in Christ and his forgiveness. And we desire to follow him. And the Bible says that desire should be a corporate desire. We should come together. That we should be building up the body of Christ. If you're not here, then you're not building up the body of Christ. There's something missing. The Bible describes the body of Christ as our body. We all make up different parts. And when one part isn't here, when we're not participating as the body of Christ, someone's walking around without a leg or without an arm. Something's not getting done. Maybe somebody who needed some encouragement didn't get it that day because you didn't show up. Because you were too busy. 
or you let your work schedule get out of hand or whatever it might be. See, we need to take this seriously. So don't be looking for some new experience. God has given us everything in Christ Jesus pertaining to godliness. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. And while you're at our website, don't forget to download our mobile app. New and improved and ready to use, whether you're securely donating online or taking advantage of the podcasts on your mobile phone, simply go to iTunes or Google Play and look for Grace Bible Church Redwood City-CA. Or stop by our website, gracefultruth.org, and follow the prompts. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.